0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. If you want to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, today on page 1028. As we continue on in our study of this book, we're going to be looking today at verse 9 of chapter 1 down through the end of the chapter. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I encourage you to listen as I read along to you. This is the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters and his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead no kidding but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not are the seven churches let's pray together our father we are so thankful for your word we are thankful that you not only gave it to john so long so long ago and you enabled him to write it down just as you wanted him to do but that you have so preserved it so that we can read it even today and receive the encouragement and the strengthening that come as your Holy Spirit is at work through your word. So we pray for that to be the case today. Open our hearts, open our eyes to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, just a few weeks ago we started this new study of the book of Revelation, and I told you on that first Sunday when we began looking at Revelation chapter 1 that I was feeling both... I had feelings of both intimidation as well as excitement. Uh, and uh, that, that's still there. And I expect that they will both be there uh, as we continue to progress our way through this book. It is an intimidating book. It is an intimidating thing to read and try to understand. There is so much interpretation out there by so many different peoples throughout church history. But my hope and my hope for you as well is that if you feel both of that intimidation, maybe even a little bit of trepidation, as well as excitement, that the balances will tip as we continue our way through this book. That more and more and more your hearts will be filled with hope and with excitement and with joy as we see this wonderful book that God has given to us as his people. It's been pretty tame so far, but today we're going to be jumping in to some of that fantastic image and vision that John received. Before we jump in, I want to give you just a quick reminder of some things we talked about a couple of weeks ago. First and foremost, I want you to remember that this is a letter. It is an apocalyptic genre of literature, but it is first and foremost a letter. It was written by a man, John, who was given God's word through an angel. And it was written to people. It was written, as we'll see in just a moment, to seven churches, to the people in seven churches in, in Asia Minor. Minor. John knew them. They were real people living in real space and time. He knew what they were experiencing And he was writing to encourage them. He's writing to real people in real places with real life situations. But as we talked about last week, as we see, this was written to seven churches. Certainly he was speaking specifically of those seven churches that are mentioned in our passage today. But we've already talked about the fact that John uses the number seven symbolically as the Bible does as a whole to talk about completeness, wholeness. This is not just a letter that was written to the seven churches that are referenced. This is a letter that was written to all of God's people throughout history. It is written to us, for us to learn and to be encouraged from. The second thing I want you to remember is something I shared with you a few weeks ago. Two of my More favorite commentators on this book, uh, Poitras and Beale, have both said that the book of Revelation is meant to be read as a child's picture book, not as a puzzle. Uh, So often we think of it as a puzzle that is extremely complicated, that is so difficult for us to figure out how all the pieces go together. And there are a lot of pieces that we will be looking at, not only today, but in the coming weeks and months as we uh, seek to understand this book. But this book is meant to be understood. It's meant to be believed and it's meant to encourage God's people. So we have to be careful as we begin, even today, to dig into the details, which is good to do, that we not get lost. And we not lose the big picture of the storybook of Revelation. God is in control of history and he wins through Jesus. We must always remember that wonderful big picture of this book. So today as we begin looking at this first vision that John received from the angel. Just a reminder that we're still in the introduction of this letter. And as we continue in the introduction to this letter, what we're going to see today are three things as he's forecasting uh, to the people that he's writing to. He's going to talk to them about the problem that they and he and we as well face. He's going to talk to them about the solution that God provides to that problem. And then we'll finish by looking at some of the things that we ought to respond, how we ought to respond uh, as a result. So first of all, what's the problem that he brings up? The problem is that there is, for God's people, trouble that comes from both the outside and from within. That's how he starts in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Some of the very earliest church historians, one named Eusebius, that wrote just a couple hundred years after John died, uh, tell us that John, fairly late in life, left Jerusalem and went to the city of Ephesus to minister in the city of Ephesus as an elderly man. And after he ministered there for quite a while, he began to endure great persecution for what he was teaching uh, the word of God, he's talking about Jesus, a- and the authorities didn't take kindly to that. And so he was persecuted. He was even tortured, but that didn't cause him to turn away from the truth. And as a result, the authorities decided to get rid of him. And so they sent him off, as we read here, to the island of Patmos. He says he's a partner in tribulation. That's a Greek word that literally means suffering, suffering. Affliction, trouble that's brought on by outward circumstances. He was sent to this island of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony off the coast of Turkey, with an incredibly harsh environment. Volcanic rock made up most of the island. It was an uncomfortable place to be, and they basically left the people there alone because the existence there was so miserable. And there, John was exiled to live out the last of his days. And notice why he's there. He tells us, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is what he says. Because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his faithfulness to the word of God, he's exiled. You understand, believer in Christ, that if you are a Christian here in this world, there is trouble for us. Now I know most of us in this room have not experienced the kind of trouble and persecution that we read about so often in God's word that came to God's people. But there are God's people around the world that are enduring persecution and tribulation and difficulty even today. And even though we haven't experienced it ourselves, what the Bible tells us and what John is reminding us is that that is the norm. Jesus said... If you are following me in this world, you will have trouble. Now, he encouraged his disciples by reminding them that he has overcome the world. But it is still the reality for us here as God's people that we are to expect. It is to be what we expect to be the norm is. Difficulty and trials and tribulations from outside in this world. But it's not just the outside problems that John addresses in this book. It's also the trouble that comes from within. In the next several weeks, we're going to get into chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus is addressing these various churches, the seven churches. And as he addresses them one by one, he begins to raise the the problems that he has, the concerns that he has with these churches. Just listen to some of the things that he addresses. A lack of passion for the Lord and for living a life of good works. Immorality. Idolatry. Tolerating immorality in others. Spiritual laziness. Spiritual apathy. Trust in financial stability more than in the Lord. When we hear that list of things, of sins, of of troubles that were from within the churches, from within the people of God, it's a familiar list to us, is it not? Because these sins that these churches, these people in these churches were struggling with are no different than the ones we deal with. Sometimes, difficulty and trouble doesn't come from outside in circumstances that we can't control, but it comes from within, from our own sinful hearts. It's not just things that are out there, it's also things within here. John knew that these were real problems for Christians in persevering and enduring, both for the ones that he was writing to and for us as well. Life is hard. There are lots of things outside of us, outside of our control that make this life difficult. And our own sin as well from within makes our life difficult. And it is tempting to give up and to lose hope and to doubt that the Lord is trustworthy and good and faithful. To give in to sinful temptations. But John was writing this letter to encourage the people of God to spur them on to persevere, to fill them with hope and trust and even joy. So what is the solution that John experiences himself and shares with us and then writes down so that we might also experience it? Well, the first part of the solution is that John had to look and see something. Notice what he says. I was in this in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a sun." Of man. John has an angel come to him and begin to give him this vision, and he hears this voice and he turns to see who was speaking and what did he see? He sees one like a son of man, he says. That's Jesus' favorite designation of himself in the New Testament. And it is also a term that is used significantly in the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel. And almost all the commentators agree, John is drawing heavily here from Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. And I want you to notice how the Son of Man is described here. John, using language, drawing language from Daniel from the Old Testament, gives us a picture of this Son of Man, of Jesus Himself, fulfilling His offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now, how do we see that? Well, look... And what we see here is how Jesus is described as a priest. The end of verse 13, we're told that the Son of Man was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Those were specific garments that the high priest would wear specifically described in Exodus chapter 28. In fact, the word there that's used for long robe was the specific word that was used in the Old Testament to refer to the long robe that the priest wore as he served in the temple and tabernacle. It's also in verse 13, beginning of verse 13, where we're told that that the Son of Man who was wearing this long robe and the golden sash around his chest was in the midst of the lampstands. There... The high priest in the temple would go into the temple to make sure that the lampstands would continue to be lit in fulfilling God's requirements in the temple. He, this picture here is one of a priest, the high priest, serving God's people. But it's not just a priest. He also gives us a picture of the Son of Man as the King. At the Beginning of verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. It's a picture of... Of one who stands secure and stable like an immovable warrior or conqueror. And even more than that, at the end of verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees all. He knows all. His eyes and the fire that come out of them are able to burn through any obstacle that would try to obscure His eyes of fire purify all that they gaze upon with his truth. And also at the end of verse 16, we read that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Just remind yourself of the last time when you looked up into the sky. And without any kind of barrier to your eyes, sunglasses or others, you you catch a glimpse of the sun. And how it actually causes you to wince. How it causes your, your head and your forehead to hurt just a little bit because of the brilliance of the sun. And yet, even at that moment, you're not seeing the sun in its full strength. And what we are being told here is that John looks and sees the Son of Man in all of His royal majesty. His royal face shining in unbearable brilliance. He is the priest. He is the king. He's also the prophet. Beginning at verse 14, we're told that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's an analogy that's used throughout the scriptures, often to point to a picture of wisdom, a a picture of maturity. We read at the end of verse 10 that he had a loud voice like a trumpet and at the end of verse 15 that his voice was like the roar of many waters. This was a prophet who had a voice that came out with power and authority and drowned out all other voices that would seek to go against him. We also read at the end of verse 16 that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This loud, authoritative wisdom that came out was the word of truth that was able to divide and to pierce. The word that was able to save those who would believe and the word that would conquer those who refused to believe. What an incredibly encouraging vision that John is getting of the Son of Man, of Jesus Himself. Fulfilling those wonderful offices of the Old Testament in an ultimate way. prophet priest, and king. But there is more here than just a vision of Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Go back and look at what he says at the beginning of verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. In two different passages. And I want you to either turn there with me or just listen to me as I read to you from Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10 and then 13 and 14. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10 and verses 13 and 14. So Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. Now listen to what Daniel goes on to say. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, I know it's a little bit convoluted, but I want you to understand what is happening here. We have this vision, Daniel's vision, of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, who is the Ancient of Days described as having white hair, wool. And what does John do with that vision? When John receives that vision... He looks and sees the Son of Man with the exact same description as the Ancient of Days in Daniel. He's pointing us to Jesus not only as our prophet, priest, and king, but as God Himself. Fully God and fully man. This is a beautiful and glorious description of Jesus as fully God and as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And I want you to notice something about him. Notice what Daniel says about where he was. Back in verse 12, "I, I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, in verse 20, you'll remember, John gets an answer to the vision about what these lampstands represent. What were they? They're the churches. So, as he looks and sees the Son of Man in all of his glory, where is he? He's in the midst of his church. As prophet, priest, and king, he is in the midst of his people. He is pictured as being right in the middle of them, just as the high priest was in the midst of the people of the Old Testament tending the lampstands in the temple. And what he is telling us here by reminding us as he sees this vision of Jesus in the midst of his church is the encouragement that in the midst of persecution and tribulations and problems that come from both outside and struggles from within, Jesus is with us. It's a beautiful picture of the promises that we have in Scripture. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You will be my people and I will be your God. The resurrected Jesus speaking to his disciples said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think this image of Jesus being in the midst of his people is also supposed to conjure up that image that we have of what it was like in the garden before the fall. As God himself walked in the midst of his people, Adam and Eve, perfect fellowship and communion. And what we have here is the vision of what Jesus has accomplished through His person and work on the cross. Nothing less than reestablishing us in true, complete fellowship and communion with God Almighty. What was He doing as He's standing in the midst? Well, we read He's in the midst of these seven lampstands, in the midst of the church in verse 13. And then at the beginning of verse 16, we read that He's holding seven stars in His right hand. Thankfully, this isn't always the case in Revelation, but we also have the explanation of what those seven stars are. Again, in verse 20, we're told, Jesus tells John and tells us as well that those seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. And again, we're getting this beautiful picture of what the the Son of Man of Jesus is doing in all of His glory as our prophet, priest, and king, as God Himself in our midst. What is He doing He is holding his churches firm in his gracious grip. And I don't know exactly what this means other than it must mean that there are angels that have been designated for the churches of God's people. And that even now in the heavens themselves, those angelic beings are representing us as it were. What encouragement it is that God is not only holding us in His hand and in His grip, but He is even ordering His angelic beings to serve and protect and to watch over His people. You see what this means. The solution, first of all, is to look and to see your Savior, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. In the midst of troubles from without and troubles from within, we are to know that he is guarding and protecting us, that he is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that with all of his glory and authority and power, he has worked to reestablish fellowship between God and us so that we can be encouraged and filled with hope and full of strength. And as if that wasn't enough, that we would look and see that Jesus, notice what we also see about what John heard. Go back to verse 17. John says, When I saw him, when I saw this Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Of course he did. That's what happens when you come face to face with the glory of the resurrected Jesus. The power and the authority and the glory of Jesus caused John to fall on his face. But then what did he hear? Fear not, Jesus said. What did he do? He put his right hand. Notice... We're told that specifically, his right hand on his shoulder. The right hand in Scripture is symbolic of power and authority. And what we have here is a picture of the grace of God. The power and the authority, the dominion of the right hand of Jesus himself is placed on the shoulder of John as he's humbly prostrate before Jesus. And Jesus, as it were, gently lifts him up and says, John, don't be afraid. Fear not. And, and perhaps, if we were there, and perhaps maybe in John's own mind, he's thinking... I have all kinds of reasons to be afraid. Why should I fear not? And Jesus answers that even before John voices it. What does he say? Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. I am the one who's in control of history, John. I am the one who is sovereign over all things. I am the one who is outside of time, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one with all power. And even in addition to that, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm the one who came into this world. I'm the one who came and lived a life of perfect love and obedience to the Father. I'm the one who gave my life willingly that you might have life eternal. I am the one who not only went into the grave, but I am the one who was raised and who has ascended into the heavens themselves. Jesus has secured our redemption through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and not even death itself can ever change that. Now as we see and look and hear and listen to this Jesus and we take all of this in, we start to see what our right and proper response should be. First, we have to be overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus. As we look at John's vision as a child's picture book for us and we see this big picture of This big Jesus, this glorified and majestic and powerful Jesus, we are meant, just like John did, to fall on our faces in the midst of that glory. Yes, Jesus is described to us as a friend. But before we see him as our friend, we must see him in his glory and his majesty. Some of you know the story well that C.S. Lewis Uh, tried to explain that aspect of the glory of Jesus in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a child storybook. And you'll remember the story that took place in that book between the children of men, as they were referred to, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, as they were preparing and heard about the arrival of Aslan. Aslan in the book is the Christ figure. Listen to how the conversation goes. One of the kids asked whether Aslan was a man. Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the picture that we get. That's the picture that John get of this uh, this glorified and majestic Jesus. And it's meant to give us this visual picture of the glory and the majesty and the power of Jesus. And it should overwhelm us. A second response is not only to be overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, but to be encouraged by the grace of Jesus. Jesus, as it were, as we put our faith in him, puts his hand on our shoulder and lifts us up out of our being overwhelmed in His glory, and He looks into our eyes and He says, My beloved child, fear not. Do not be afraid. When I tell you that there is no need to fear, you can trust Me, Jesus says. No matter what you are called to go through and endure in this life, and I know that sometimes it can be extreme and significant, The words of Jesus echo in our minds and hearts. I am in control and I love you and I am with you. In the midst of troubles from outside and troubles from inside, the sovereign glory and grace of Jesus is meant to strengthen us to endure, to keep going and not give up. Did you notice back in verse 9 of how John referred to himself not only as one who was dealing with tribulation, but one who was patiently enduring? That's our call. As we meditate on the glory and the grace of Jesus, He is calling us as God's people to patiently endure. It's one word in the Greek, but it takes two words of our English language to get at it. It's not just being patient, and it's not just enduring. It is a patient, steadfast, persevering endurance. And what enables us to patiently endure the suffering and the troubles and the difficulties from without and from within? Well, he said it in verse 9 I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. It's as we rest in Jesus, as we look to his victory over death, his control over history, we are meant to be encouraged. A third thing. We ought to be filled with the word of Jesus. We have to take a step back just for a moment and recognize that John is being given this instruction to write it down. He was to write it down. It is now what we have as God's word in the book of Revelation. It's the word of Christ to us. It is the word of God given to us. It is everything that we need for faith and for practice. We are meant to read it and to understand it and to trust it and to follow what it says. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped For every good work. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. It was given to John, and God has so preserved it that we now have it. And it is right, and it is true, and it does not lead us astray. And what that means for us is two things. First of all, we must trust God's word over what we think and what we feel when those things disagree. When what we think and what we feel disagrees with God's word, we land on God's word. And secondly, we must change our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit to live according to what God's word says. This is given not only to point us to the cross and to point us to God's wonderful story of redemption. It is also meant and given to us that we might grow in our understanding of it and our ability to look more and more like our Savior through the work of the Spirit. And lastly, we ought to be overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus. We ought to be encouraged by the grace of Jesus. We ought to be filled with the word of Jesus. We ought to be moved to celebrate the day of Jesus. Did you notice back in verse 10, John says... That he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's actually the first time in the Scriptures that this little phrase, the Lord's Day, comes up. And actually over the next couple hundred years, it actually became very common as a reference to Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. It's not our day. It's His day. And here's the beauty of it. He created it. For us that as Jesus says in his word in Mark chapter 2 the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus visited John through the angel on the Lord's day it was meant to be a little foretaste to John of what heaven was going to be like and I wonder do we think of the Lord's day that way do we think of the Lord's Day as an opportunity for us each and every week to get a little glimpse of heaven? God's given it to us as, as a, for a blessing. It's meant to be a blessing for us. And so as we finish, I'll just encourage you to reflect on how do you use the Lord's Day to get a little taste of what heaven will be like. Yes, coming together with God's people to worship in a corporate way but also spending time in rest, spending time enjoying the creation of God, celebrating our redemption that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ together as we fellowship and have communion together with one another. Are you doing things to make this day different, to mark it out? Don't miss out on this wonderful blessing that God gives to us, that He calls the Lord's day. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful as we pray often that you have given us your word. We're thankful that through the work of your spirit, you help us to understand it. As we continue on in this book that many of us believe is really difficult to understand at times, at least, we pray that you would give us your grace and mercy to understand it, because we can see how it was written to encourage your people so long ago, and written to encourage us as well. And we need it. We need your encouragement. We need reminders of what is true. We need reminders of what we ought to do as a result of what is true. So would you continue your work in us through your Holy Spirit to teach us and to train us through your word that is breathed out by you. We pray you would do this for your glory and for your grace to be extended in our lives And in this entire world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a description and some instructions about what took place as Jesus gathered his disciples together just before he went to the cross. As they were eating, Matthew tells us, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The vision that John saw and that John heard that we've been looking at this morning in in, uh, Revelation 1 was very real to him. The vision was so real of the majesty and glory of Jesus that it caused him to fall down onto his face. It was incredibly real. The glory and the grace of Jesus was made real and meaningful to him. And as we come to the conclusion of our service to the Lord's Supper, we're coming to this this means of grace that God has given to us that helps make God's glory and grace of Jesus real to us. Now, the elements stay what they are. They are bread, they are wine, they are grape juice. They don't change in any way. But it's a reminder to us that as real as these elements are, you can see them, you can feel them, you can taste them, you can smell them. As real as they are, that's how real... The promises of God are to us as we come and partake of these elements by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise that Jesus is with us, even in this very moment. That He's in our midst, that He would never leave us, that He would never give up on us, that He will never let us slip out of His strong and gracious grip. And that He promises to strengthen us and to sustain us. And He even gives us this means of grace as one way of doing that. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a believer at this specific church. But a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've publicly professed your faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes God's word is true. And that the gospel is by grace alone Through faith alone in Christ alone. Then as you come to the elements, as the elements come to you, eat and drink and be reminded of what they point us to, Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit will take what we're doing as we come in faith, may you be strengthened in your faith so that as we go out, we might truly believe and rest in the glory and the grace of our Savior. Let's pause for a moment and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Father in heaven, we do thank You so much for the Lord's Supper. We thank You for this means of grace. We, we pray, Father, that, uh, that You would encourage us once again as we eat and drink, as we remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been given for us. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, Father, as we come believing and trusting in Christ, we pray that you would not only remind us of these wonderful truths, but also that you would strengthen us. We know that there is so much coming at us in this coming week. So many things that are difficult from outside of ourselves and even difficulties from within. And we need your grace and glory to be foremost in our minds. We pray that you would be at work through the Holy Spirit, to strengthen us, we pray. Thank you for giving us this table. Use it for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.